Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Foreign Desk covers world news in a bright and breezy format. According to its enthusiastic host, the Australian journalist Andrew Muller, what sets the Foreign Desk apart is a guiding principle of actually speaking to at least one person from the country they're talking about. As Andrew says in an email, it shouldn't be unusual, but it is. This recent primer on the Trump-Kim summit in Singapore called Do We Still Need International Summits? is a good example of the show's signature style and also told me all I needed to know about what happened at the summit itself and the past and the future of these carefully choreographed pieces of political stagecraft. Summits have become a familiar and frequent diplomatic ritual. It sometimes seems that national leaders spend more of their time affecting a convivial rictus and shaking hands in front of flags than they do actually governing. That being the case, it takes something extraordinary to jolt everyone from summit fatigue, and the Singapore Symposium between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was exactly that. It remains to be seen whether the Trump-Kim meeting will accomplish anything meaningful. But is that even the purpose of a summit anymore? What is it like to be in the room when enemies are trying to forge peace? How has the idea of the summit evolved? And did anyone figure out what Dennis Rodman was doing there? This is The Foreign Desk. The idea was really that there were issues that could only be settled by the leaders and needed to be done face to face, partly because of the whole concept of trust, in a sense of being able to look the other guy in the eye, shake his hand, and then come to a deal which might work. From the Singaporean point of view, I think the city-state was just so glad to play a part in these peace talks that had the world spotlight on them. It went sort of beyond the two protagonists was about gaining a a strong place geopolitically and in media all over the world for this particular week. The summit in the end must deliver on the substance. That's why most summits either open a process or alternatively, is the last stop on the railroad before you actually close a negotiation and an agreement. And the ones that fall in the middle, those tend to be more problematic. Hello and welcome to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, we'll hear from a former negotiator about what goes on inside the room at international talks and how summits have evolved since Europe's aristocrats rattled across the continent in horse-drawn carriages to the Congress of Vienna. But we start in Singapore, where history, if not sense, was made when US President Donald Trump became the first occupant of that position to meet a leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Following the circumstances, Focus on Sentosa was Stefania Palmer, the Financial Times Singapore correspondent. Welcome to the programme, Stefania. I want to start by asking just for a, a general depiction of the atmosphere around the summit in Singapore. What difference to the city did the summit make? Were you always aware that this thing was happening? 
I think the sort of starkest way that you could obviously realize there was uh, such a historic summit happening was mostly the security measures. So there were roadblocks and security, uh, police and very sort of big, large signs asking people to follow police orders, especially when you got closer to the Shangri-La and St. Regis hotels, which were the ones where Trump and Kim were staying. So I think the security measures were sort of the most obvious ways in which you could realize that the summit was happening. And also, I think whenever sort of we spoke to taxi drivers or drivers of uh, Grab, which is sort of the Southeast Asian version of Uber, they were obviously the more frustrated people in Singapore because of uh, traffic and the fact, especially for Grab drivers, they were very scared that cancellations because of delays were going to hurt their ratings. So actually, a group of them were decided not to work at all during the, the summit week. Like a lot of people, I think, who watched all this from afar, as I did, I I was mesmerised by the idea that being a a Kim Jong-un impersonator is a viable business model uh, and indeed a Donald Trump one. Did, Did you meet the impersonators? I didn't meet them in person, uh, but they were essentially roaming around Singapore for many days preceding the the summit. And they even put together a sort of show, sort of photo opportunity in the in the form of their own summit a couple of days before the actual summit, which happened on Tuesday. And around 100 people showed up uh, to take selfies with the impersonators at a cost. It was about $11 a selfie. So they were actually quite a sensation, I have to say. And it attracted a lot of attention. How much of a general circus was there around it in terms of things like souvenirs and celebrations? Because lest we all forget, say whatever else you will about President Trump, he is the President of the United States, whereas the other participant in this meeting is, of course, the leader of one of the worst tyrannies in human history. Indeed. And I mean, I think from the Singapore perspective, there were different ways in which this was commemorated. And, you know, there were things sort of food related or cocktail related. So some of the restaurants, you know, put together special burgers or tacos or nasi lemak, which is sort of the traditional rice dish. I think the quirkier sort of side of things involved the Singapore Mint uh, putting together some commemorative medallions and actually the gold plated one, which was over a thousand Singapore dollars a piece. They had to increase production for its threefold to meet demand uh, from collectors. But I think from the Singapore point of view, I think the city-state was just so glad to play a part in uh, these peace talks that had the world spotlight on them as a small city-state. And I think that's why sort of the commemoration was so strong. It went sort of beyond almost the two protagonists that were involved. Uh, I think for the city-state especially, it was about gaining a a strong place geopolitically and uh, I guess in media all over the world for this particular week. And here's the next guest. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. At any summit, somewhere amid all the extraneous ballyhoo, is a room in which will often be gathered people who usually go out of their way to avoid each other. Our next guest has been in several such rooms. Aaron David Miller is the Vice President and Director of the Middle East Programme at the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C., and previously an advisor to both Democratic and Republican Secretaries of State on Arab-Israeli relations. Aaron, welcome to the programme. I want to ask, first of all, about summits and the extent to which they're basically kind of theatrical. Is it not the case that more or less everything that's going to be announced is decided in advance? No. If that were the case, 
then the record for presidential summitry would be much more consistent than it is. Most presidential summits fail. They fail because if in the event they are not meet and greet plus meetings or getting to know you meetings, unless they're those sorts of summits where the expectation of a joint statement communique or a negotiation result is not the main focus, most presidential summits don't work. So the reality is no. Let's go back to the the beginning of a summit or before the beginning of a summit. And if we focus particularly on Camp David 2000, though I know that's not the only summit you were involved in, what are the preparations like for something like that? And I mean in terms of, you know, those details, the table arrangements, what shape the table is, who sits where, how much time gets expended worrying about that kind of intricacy? Well, it really depends whether or not the negotiators are familiar with one another. For example, at Camp David in July of 2000, reality was that Israelis and Palestinians had been negotiating with one another for so long that that summit was actually quite casual. Seating arrangements, who would eat with whom, all of that stuff, we didn't have to worry about. If you compare that, however, with the Madrid summit, in October of 1991, in which I also participated, in which Russia and the United States, Gorbachev and Bush 41, brought Israel, a joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation, Syrian delegation, an observer from the Gulf Cooperation Council together. That required a fair amount of thinking through, including the choice of venue, Madrid. We had to identify a city where both Israelis and uh, Syrians primarily had formal representation where the Palestinians felt comfortable. There were arrangements in the hall that need to be made. The uh, Spanish had a gorgeous painting. It must have been 10 by 15 feet of Charles killing the Moors. Well, we couldn't very well have that, and the Spanish didn't want it moved, but we persuaded them to move it. So in that case, where you had a three-day summit in which the first better part of the first and half of the second day was a public event, bringing together parties that had never interacted with one another formally in that sort of setting with large delegations, including President of the United States and the Premier of the former Soviet Union, that required much more planning. Aaron David Miller of the Wilson Centre speaking to the Foreign Desk's Andrew Muller. And the show recently won the Best Current Affairs category in the British Podcast Awards. That's from an episode called Do We Still Need International Summits? And you can find a link to its website and information on past episodes on our webpage now. That's rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And thanks to Andrew Muller, Bill Lutie and Tom Edwards at Monocle for letting me bring that to you.